Oh, so yeah, I wanted to tie up some loose ends with some ideas that we've been going over. Um, if you haven't been keeping up, we do are posting the podcast every week, so you can definitely backtrack. Um, I try to design each evening to be independent, but as you know, the ideas do carry over. In the last few weeks specifically, we've been carrying over different ideas. And this big idea that we've been talking about is cultivating the factors of awakening and how we do that with the individual factors. And we've got two more that we haven't touched on fully, uh, which are the pleasure factors. And I'd like to finish that up so at least within those Dharma talks, all of that information will be available to you. Of course, we will continue to talk about that uh, over and over again. Uh, But when we started Wednesday Wake Up, I really made sort of a commitment that I would at least go through that in the beginning so people can have access to some of this basic material that we don't hear very often. So when we talk about other concepts, um, a lot of this early stuff can help you to understand and be informed about your practice with a little bit more depth, a little bit more detail. And from for some of you more mature practitioners who've been around for a while, just giving you a deeper dive uh, right out the gate so you'll have something to chew on for a while. But all this material will be rehashed over and over again because, as another one of my teachers said, um, it's my job to be redundant. So if I'm being redundant, then we're good. So um, last week we talked about fabrication, and so I'm going to bring that up a little bit today uh, in regards to fabricating pleasure in our meditation. And I'm going to be a little more specific on how that works and why we do it. So some of this will be review. Some of it's just designed to bring the ideas together from a different perspective. And uh, then there'll be some new stuff here as well um, in regards to how to do it. And then we'll do a guided meditation, at least some guided meditation at the end, um, just to practice a little bit of this. Because I know many of you have not done this type of work before or have done it very infrequently. And it can be a little confusing because it is confusing. Um, So I'll try to shed some light on that. And if there's any questions, we'll have two times for questions throughout so we can get questions answered before we practice. So let me just remind us about um, conditioned reality, as the Buddha called it. The Buddha talked about how suffering and happiness are conditioned, meaning there's something that's created. Oftentimes, because the mind is moving so quickly, because perception is happening so quickly, when we experience happiness or when we experience some kind of stress, this experience is happening so fast, it feels like it's happening to us. I feel angry. I feel excited. This is making me feel good. But we don't see how those experiences are constructed. We don't see how they're put together. Happiness and suffering are made up of pieces, of parts. They're constructed of different things. And we play a role in constructing them. It's just that it's happening so quickly, we can't see the role we're playing. Because perception is happening at lightning speed. So this idea that happiness and suffering is conditioned, it just means it's that there's pieces. There's different things that are happening that come together and form an experience. And we are taking part in putting the puzzle pieces together. So that's what that means when the Buddha says things are conditioned. It means there's pieces and parts that come together and that we are playing a role in that. Another way I like to say it, and you've heard all of these examples, sometimes I'll say we play a role in shaping our experience. Sometimes I'll say our experience is fabricated. And sometimes I'll say we co-create our experience. So those are just different ways of saying the world is conditioned and that we live in a type of universe where our experience is something that we participate in And we get to dance on that stage of conditionality 
And that's good news because then we can change our role. We can change our identity. We can change how we think, how we feel, how we hold our bodies. And in doing that, we can have a different sense of ease in the world. And with practice, we can have a sense of ease even in times of distress. We can fabricate or co-create an experience where we get some stress reduction and we can have some control or autonomy over that experience. The Buddha's quest can be framed in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways that the Buddha frames it is his question was, how much influence do I actually have in my own life? How much influence do I really have in all of this chaos that seems to be going on? And at the time of the Buddha, this was a big philosophical question. And the, the Buddha's big question, of course, was, how much influence do I have in my own happiness? Can I actually change the level of happiness, the consistency of happiness in my life? Or is it just up to fate? Is it just up to random happenstance that today I wake up and I feel okay, I feel expansive and loving and connected, and then tomorrow I, I don't feel that? Or um, today I feel depressed or anxious, and then two hours later my mood changes. Is there any role I play? So the Buddha was really asking something about causality. He wanted to know how much influence was worth trying to exert on the world, on this chaotic world that he saw. He really wanted to know how much control human beings really have in their own well-being. And at the time, there was lots of debates. Many people said, we don't have much at all, and it's no, there's no point in trying. You just have to let reality do its thing, and there's no point in trying to participate to change that. The outcome was the outcome. Some people said you had to um, do rituals. Some said you had to please a priest or pay a priest a certain donation to have him bring good things into your life, so on and so forth. There was a lot of different views on what caused happiness and what role we play in that. So it wasn't obvious um, to the Buddha. The question was sincere, and it was a long journey for him to come to his conclusion. Seven or eight years of intensive training where he nearly died trying to figure out the answer of what kind of influence or autonomy he had in his own life. Um, so that's the, big, that's the big question as far as fabrication goes. And so his conclusion was, we have some influence. So we have some influence. We don't have complete free will, he said. But he said it's not that it's fate either. Every moment, he said, is in part a piece from our past. So all of us are in this room because someone created the internet. That had nothing to do with us. Someone did something. They had an intentional action. And because they created the internet, we have this experience tonight. So this experience tonight is in part brought to us by someone else's existence, someone else's life, someone else's struggles, someone else's choices. Um, they're not here, obviously, in this moment, but we are here in partly conditioned. Now, how we choose to interact with this internet, now we have some agency. It was created. We don't have any agency over that. That was just something that in, is imported into the present moment from someone else and someone else's experience, or as we say, someone else's karma, someone else's actions. So we have some control on how we show up tonight. And then some of it is based on other things that are out of our control. How we respond, though, the Buddha said, that is where we have the most agency. How we respond to what's going on, that's where we want to live. That's where intentionality, that's where compassion, that's where joy and happiness are blossom out of. They blossom out of this present moment experience where we can show up with an open heart, a wise mind. We can show up with equanimity. 
We can show up with discernment and wisdom. And when we respond in that way, we have a significant control over our happiness, a significant control over whether we feel loving and connected. So this was the good news after all of the Buddha's efforts, that even though we don't have total control, there is a place in the world where if we use mindfulness to enter into, we have significant agency on how we can be. And that was the Buddha's big awakening, that we can be free if we participate in the world in a particular way. And if we practice certain habits that allow us to show up as kind, compassionate, and awakened beings. That was his insight. So we have some autonomy. We have some agency. And sometimes one of the two cool metaphors that I've heard in the past about this process is um, one was that you can look at reality like a soup and that the broth is given. You walk into the present moment and the, the soup stock is there. And then we can add salt and pepper, garlic, paprika. If you're a meat eater, you might add beef. If you're not, you can add tofu. We have some agency in what this experience is going to taste like, feel like, be like. But the broth is just going to be given. The present moment is already got some stuff in it, but we have raw materials at our disposal that we can mix into the present moment and create something that is delightful, right? We can create something positive. Um, so we have these raw materials or these ingredients, if you will, and that's the pieces. Those are the conditions that arise. So another way of looking at it, like you, you enter into a present moment, let's say you're at work or at this point you're home zooming, most of us, and suddenly anger arises or irritation or fatigue. That's a condition. So there's some fatigue arising. And then maybe you notice, oh, there's some angry or disgruntled thoughts arising. That's another piece of the present moment. And then maybe there's another moment where you feel frustrated and all these pieces come together. How are you going to show up with those pieces? What are you going to do with the anger? Are you going to bring awareness to the body and notice it? Are you going to react? Are you going to feed the fire and start judging yourself or judging others? Is your heart going to contract when it meets those conditions and exacerbate the situation? So we have this ability when a fire is lit in the present moment, we can either put the fire out or we can add fuel. How we respond with those ingredients is up to us. We can sustain that fire for a certain period of time, let's say the fire happens to be compassion versus say anger, we can feed that fire of compassion, of goodness, of goodwill, of a sense of wanting to be connected to others, a sense of wanting to be free. We can stoke that fire and continue that into the next moment and the moment after that. Or if it's something that's negative, we can show up differently and we can put that fire out. We have the ability to take these raw materials, these ingredients of reality and do something with it. The challenge, of course, is cooking is not easy. We got to practice. We got to know what the recipe is. We need to know and experiment because some of us, myself specifically, maybe some of you, I'm sure in this group of 20-something, there's going to be several people at least that cook really well. Um, cooking with the raw materials, though, of the present moment is a whole different story. It takes practice to have skillful speech. It takes practice to be mindful of anger or discontent. It takes practice... Uh, when someone's pushing our buttons not to overreact. We have to practice how we use those ingredients. In the beginning of our meditation practice, we're usually putting too much salt, too much pepper, not enough salt, not enough pepper. 
usually we're getting dukkha, right? We're getting a dukkha soup and we have to learn how to make it more flavorful so that it is something more joyful uh, and pleasant and something that brings happiness to ourselves and something we can share with others, right? Because the more we bring joy and awakening to our present moment, the more other people can share in the merits of our practice. So as we become better chefs of reality, we have something to offer other people, right? When they show up in the moment with us, we have something that can be shared. And that love and compassion and wisdom is something we can all feed off of. And the Buddha does talk about pleasant experiences being a type of spiritual food. So it's something we can feed off of, nourish ourselves, and in turn, nourish others, and use it to nourish our relationships as well when you look at it from that light. So the Eightfold Path, from one perspective, is a series of tools that teach us how to use the ingredients, right? The Eightfold Path is essentially a cookbook of spirituality. It is a cookbook of compassion. It's a cookbook of happiness. It tells us different ways to use the ingredients and to mix them and to practice so things turn out better for us day to day, right? So that we can have a sense of ease and well-being and when we become good at that, right, when we become consistent meditators, when we become consistent with our um, generosity, when we become consistent with our compassion practices, then it becomes a natural state of who we are. We become meditators, we become more awakened and more loving, and day to day, that's the ground of our being. We act out of that and we show up in the world more often like that, and that's the awakening. That's the living into the awakening. So the Eightfold Path is like a cookbook of happiness, a cookbook of compassion. And fabrication just means these are the instructions on how you interact with the present moment in ways that are skillful that lead to this pleasure. So this pleasure that we talk about in uh, the Enlightenment Factors, and we've talked about them before, but they're called Rapture and Tranquility. And they're just pleasure. They're pleasure factors. They're feelings of pleasure at the physical level, at the emotional level, at the psychological level. It's just really what we call pleasure. And they do have some unique qualities, um, but they're called rapture and tranquility. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how to understand what they feel like and why we cultivate them in our practice. And then at the, at the end, I'd like to do some guided meditation around it and take any questions around this, uh, depending on, on what your experience is. So why cultivate pleasure in our practice? There are some obvious reasons, but then there are some subtle reasons as well. So one of the things we, we need to remember is that life is only occurring in the present moment. The present moment is the only place that seeds of happiness can be planted. The future has not occurred and the past is long gone. So the present really is the only place that we can garden. It's the only place we can plant good seeds to have good outcomes. So happiness is always planted in the present moment. That is the only place that our life is really lived. And so that is where happiness is really grown. It is hard to be in the present moment, as we all know. We invite the breath and the mind to join us in the present moment. And it agrees to do that for a hot minute. And then it runs off into some other world, a fantasy world, a world of regret, a, re a world of anticipation, um, whatever it may be. The mind just, in general does not want to stay in the present moment. It wants to go play somewhere else. So one of the reasons that we learn to cultivate pleasure is so the mind will enjoy staying in the present moment. So the more we can cultivate pleasure in our meditation, the longer the mind will stay in the present moment. 
So it's a treat for the mind. We want to encourage the mind to be present. And part of the reason we do that, or part of the way we do that, is we cultivate rapture and tranquility. The enticing of the mind into the present moment is really, really important. Part of that reason that we want the mind to stay in the present moment for longer and longer periods of time is that the longer the mind stays in the present moment, the clearer the mindfulness becomes. The longer the mind stays in the present moment, the sharper and more astute the mind becomes. And what that means is the mind can see deeper and deeper layers of suffering and eradicate them. The mind can go deeper into the unconscious and pull up unconscious baggage. The mind can go deeper and pull up a wellspring of compassion and love that you did not have access to because you couldn't see it. So the longer we stay in the present moment, it's like I usually talk about it like a windshield that's dirty and we're washing a windshield. The longer we're in the present moment, the cleaner the windshield, which means we can see clearly where we're going. And the clearer that windshield, the easier it is to stay on the path, the easier it is to get to the end goal of the path. Right? We want to be able to see clearly, so we want to be able to stay in the present moment for longer and longer periods of time. And cultivating rapture and tranquility is one way we do that because the mind does like to stay in the present if it's given or trained to do so. We need to remind it, oh, there's pleasure here. There can be some calm in the present moment. There can be some joy in the present moment. In the beginning, the mind's kind of like, well, I don't want to be here. I'm used to enjoying fantasizing. I'm used to enjoying relishing in the past. I'm not used to being in the present. What's there? And so the mind isn't really that optimistic about what it's going to find in the present moment when you invite it there to be with the breath. So it runs off. It goes to do something else because it is habituated to find pleasure elsewhere. We train our mind to find pleasure outside of the present moment so frequently that when we invite it to do something different, the mind's kind of like, I'm just not interested. You know, I'm not interested. And so we all know this feeling as meditators um, of the difficulty of getting the mind to, to be, to just be in the present. So that's one reason why we cultivate uh, rapture and tranquility is to create a present moment experience that's pleasurable. So the mind will find a nice restful home there and will continue to come back more frequently and it will stay there for longer periods of time. Another reason we cultivate rapture and tranquility in our meditation is because it allows us to begin to create a type of happiness that doesn't depend on outside experiences. Normally we go outside of ourselves you know, Netflix is not on the outside. It's not on the inside. It's on the outside, right? Amazon Prime on the outside, right? Coffee shop, movie theater, jogging, hiking, biking. Those are all outside. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with those experiences, but they require something on the outside, some outside condition to be available to us in order to have the pleasurable experience. So being able to cultivate rapture and tranquility in our meditation begins to lean the mind and incline the heart to start to think, oh wait, there is something right here, right now, that can be very satisfying. And I do not need to go somewhere else or be dependent on something else for my satisfaction, for my satiation. So it begins to lean the mind and incline the heart inward. And it begins to be a resource for ourselves, right? It's a resource for ourselves to know that we have this treasure inside, this happiness inside that we can access because we've learned to cultivate it. And the mind knows to go there because we've invited it there frequently enough to where it sets up shop. So one last reason 
that these two qualities, pleasure qualities, are important is because the Buddha calls them blameless or harmless. Tranquility and rapture don't hurt anybody. It's a type of happiness that we can be confident in. We know that if we're sitting in meditation and we're really feeling restful, we're really feeling at ease, we know we're not harming ourselves and we know we're not harming others. And that's just a nice, confident thing. The Buddha really wanted to know, is it possible to have a happiness that doesn't harm? Because all of us have seen in our lives, human beings doing things that make those human beings happy at somebody else's expense. A lot of the happiness or what we call happiness in life has a price tag, right? It could be that the cost is environmental damage. It could be the cost is relational damage. It could be the cost is political, economic, who knows, any type. But there's oftentimes that we do things as humans that we really enjoy and we really like, but there's a negative consequence. Here's this opportunity to have a really deep satiating experience that we are confident is has goodness in it, right? We don't have to think, is this good? Is this bad? Am I hurting someone? Am I hurting myself? So that confidence is really nice. And as you mature as a meditator, you will be able to take refuge in tranquility and rapture more and more. And the experiences over time will be deeper. At some point, they will be deep enough that the pleasure that you get from these experiences will rival experiences from outside. That you will be surprised and in awe how much pleasure the present moment has to offer. And it will really feel nourishing and really feel inviting to the heart and mind. In the beginning stages of practice, it's not going to feel it's not going to feel so good. Most of the time, the present moment is going to have a hindrance lurking in the corner. Um, anger, aversion, sloth and torpor. But as you get better at the practice and more used to it, you will find a deep, contented satisfaction um, with these emotions. So they're very much worth your time. And of course, they're enlightenment factors. So the Buddha said, these are qualities of the heart that when cultivated, encourage awakening. So they're very good all across the board within our practice, which is why we want to uh, learn to cultivate them. So one last thing on cultivation or fabrication, and I love this image because it's one of my favorites, um, and I believe it was Tanisaro Bhikkhu who said it, but it might have been uh, Achampasano. I don't know which one. One of them said this. <laughs> I don't like to attribute the wrong quote to the wrong person, uh, but it's not, my, it's not my image, so I'm not taking credit for it. But the image was of, a, of learning to tie a shoe. And so uh, the way the image was is that if you want to untie a knot, right? Let's say you have a shoe and it's tied in a knot. If you want to learn to untie the knot, it really helps to know how the knot got there in the first place. If you've never tied a shoe before, you might look at the knot and just see like, what the heck is going on here? And we've all struggled with a knot. I'm sure every human being at some point in life has struggled with a knot. And, but it does help to know how it got there because we kind of know how knots get formed, right? Suffering is a knot. It is something that has been tightened or created. One of the best ways to figure out how to untie suffering is to know how it got tied up and bound up in the first place. Happiness is the same way. Once we realize that happiness is something that's created, then we know how to put it together, right? We could tie a nice bow instead of a knot. But if we want to untie this knot of suffering, it helps to know how was it fabricated? How did I inadvertently get this present moment to be such that I am in such distress. I'm so exhausted. I'm so fatigued. I'm so contracted. 
So this idea, I love this idea that we're, that suffering is a knot and that we're trying to figure out how it got tied up into a bunch and it just helps to know how it got there because then we can untie it. We can unfabricate it. We can decondition the stress and in its place, we can then tie a bow or something that we really, you know, that helps us. So that image to me has really stuck over the years when it comes to practicing cultivating positive traits because what what this does when you learn to cultivate happiness in your meditation what you're learning is how the mind constructs experience and the more you practice creating happiness the more you'll understand how to not create suffering and <laughs> not to create suffering because they're they're two sides of the same coin so even though in the moment I might say, hey, feel the pleasure in your hand and allow it to move into your arm, you might not be thinking, what does that have to do with ending suffering in my life? What it has to do with it is you're training the mind to understand how reality is co-constructed. And so it has this real training ground, so to speak. Not only is it fun once you get the hang of it, it teaches you how suffering is fabricated and you can then take those nasty knots and slowly untie them. I just mowed my lawn the other day and um, I grabbed the extension cord and <laughs> I had it all wrapped up nicely in this little wheel thing that I have. And then I, uh, I got lazy and I just shoved the cord back into my shed. And then the next day when I went back out to grab it, I swore I just put it just in the shed, but I pulled it out and there were like 1600 knots in this thing, <laughs> and which reminded me why I used the little wheel, because all you have to do is put a rope down and it knots itself, which is a great metaphor for suffering. If we're not paying attention, right, and we're not fabricating it in a positive way, you turn around and there's a bunch of knots, right? There's a bunch of dukkha that's right there waiting for us. So this is fabrication. This is why we practice cultivating happiness. It's blameless. It teaches us about the nature of suffering. It teaches us about the limits of free will, what kind of autonomy and agency we can have in our life. And it's it's a positive thing for ourselves and others, right? It's a, it's a blameless type of happiness. And when we can do it, it's really, really nourishing. I know in my own meditation practice, when I first learned to really get into cultivating rapture and tranquility, it changed my life significantly. There was a moment, I, I wish I remember what the circumstance was, but I, I distinctly have the flavor of the moment, certainly that stuck with me, where I was engaging in meditation, practicing with rapture and tranquility, and there was a moment where I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm doing this. Like this experience, I, I'm responsible for this moment. Like I'm creating something that's really nourishing for myself. And it just brought this big smile to my face because that's what the Buddha had intended the insight to be, was realizing, oh my gosh, I can create happiness for myself. I can do this. And it, it really changed what I saw the potential of meditation to be. I really saw that there is a happiness that could come from within. I never really believed that, truth be told. And I had already been practicing for like 15 years. And I mean, it's a nice idea when someone says, hey, you could be awakened and loving and we it, it sounds great but there were times in my practice where I was kind of like maybe maybe I can create happy maybe ultimate happiness and I just didn't I just didn't know and I kept hearing oh happiness from within and yada yada and you know I nod my head but in this moment it was very clear to me 
that there was a type of happiness that I had never tasted before that I had been partly responsible for, that I had co-created. And it was coming from in my heart and in my mind and in my body. And it was something that was precious to me that I was responsible for. And that has changed my life significantly, being able to do that. And this is partly why I continue to... Um, focus on it in my teachings for folks because I wish someone had taught me this early on in my practice and it what like I said is 15 years before I figured out this part of the the Dharma so cultivation tranquility rapture I wanted to talk about what this feels like now as I've said before one of my commitments in this group is to I'm going to try and feel comfortable to push you to your growth edge or invite you to gently stroll. I won't push you like I'm pushing you into the pool. <laughs> That's not what I mean. I will invite you to stroll to the edge of your comfort zone and perhaps peer slightly farther into the edge of your practice. Um, and so if some of this information is not landing yet for you when we start talking about this specifically on what it feels like in the body, just listen. Those are the seeds. Wait for it to happen in your practice. Um, but I want to be able to throw it out there anyway because I think it's really important to have this information before it's happening. So when it does happen, you'll know what to do with it um, and you'll get the most out of your practice because of it. And it will allow some of our other students who've been around for a while that I know are definitely having these experiences to jump in and kind of work with them. So wherever you are at with your practice, I do believe that this information is reasonable and helpful uh, and something you should be exposed to. So... Let's talk about rapture and tranquility. So again, shortcut, it's pleasure. It's pleasure. Now, it's not the same pleasure that you get from outside experiences. So the actual feeling of it is slightly different because it's being stimulated from within your heart and within your mind. It's an internal experience that actually can't happen from being, it's its, its own thing. It's not the kind of pleasure that you get from the outside, but it's similar. So that's where what you need to know. It's a similar thing. We can we can talk about it in normal terms, but it's actually a very unique physiological experience. And the deeper the experience, the more unique it becomes. It becomes very different than the joy you feel when you're at a movie or if you're taking some intoxicant, <clears throat> excuse me, or um, you're out for a jog, you know, and feeling stimulated in that way. It's a very distinct experience because it's an internal phenomenon. So we call it a transcendental emotion because it's an emotion that's not triggered by sense door contact. It's inside. It's inside cultivated. Uh, transcendental emotion. So in order to understand this experientially, I wanted to make two distinctions about the physiology when we're meditating and you have certain physical experiences. So one set of experiences that we can have are the painful or aversive sensations. Now, I'm going to use some words that meditators tend to use, and so they're going to be different for everybody, but these are just a series of words that meditators tend to use when they describe these experiences. So we know what pain is. We can have a sharp sensation in our meditation that actually is ouch, like hurts, like, okay, I'm getting a kink in my neck, or there's an old injury that's acting up, or my posture, my head's bobbing because of sloth and torpor. So we know what that experience is. We can have a sharp pain. But then there's a, a set of other sensations um, that are on that spectrum. One is density, where we feel a thickness, like we bring awareness into the body and it feels really thick and heavy. There can be tension, which is a type of contraction, like 
a contraction of the muscles in the body. There can be a tightness or stiffness that can arise. Um, and now what I'm talking about is when awareness meets body. This is what awareness will come in contact with sometimes, not always. And everyone's going to experience it differently. And you might have your own words for it, which is fine. Um, this is not like, this is not Bible, Bible words. It could be anything. Um, tightness, sharpness, tension, density. And then there's another experience that we may have when awareness hits the body. There can be a dullness to awareness. And I know many of you, I'm sure all of you at some point have brought awareness to the body and it's kind of hazy. It's kind of dull or there's like blind spots. Like you can't find your body. All of these are on the aversive spectrum, the quote unquote pain. It's not pain, but it's, it's the more negative aversive spectrum, meaning it's not the happiness traits. These are the non-happiness sensations that people get. They can go from neutral to sharp, but sometimes it's just a contraction or sometimes it's a tension or sometimes it's just a haziness that's happening. This is just a spectrum. Sorry, my microphone. This is a spectrum of experiences that we can have when awareness meets the body. As mindfulness gets clearer, this set of sensations will start fading and occurring less frequently in your practice. And they will be replaced by a set of much more pleasurable, much more exciting, so to speak, excitatory sensations. And this is the rapture and the tranquility. So there's a set of pleasurable sensations that will arise as these other sensations start to die down. Now, these sensations, the reason we call them rapture and tranquility is one is exciting and energizing. It goes up and one takes us down. One is calming. One is more soothing. They're both pleasure. That's the main thing to know is they're both pleasurable sensations, except one is energizing and one is calming. So rapture, as we call it, um, has these words associated with it. Tingling lightness, a free flow of energy in the body, meaning you feel sort of this electrical current moving through the body. That's how some people describe it. It feels like lightning or electricity. That is rapture or rapturous energy. The free flow means that it's moving. It's really moving. It can move up the spine quite frequently. Um, there's a lot of yoga, right? When you do yoga, um, that this can happen quite frequently. So you've got this free flow. You might have some tingling. You might have some lightness. You might have a sense of alertness, like you just drank a cup of coffee. Like all of a sudden your meditation is very clear and you're somewhat agitated, meaning you're so energized that the sensation is almost, some people find rapture to be irritable or irrit irritating in the body. And we can work with that. I mean, that's totally common. I've experienced that tons of times um, and I know we, I talk to students all the time who get this and that's oftentimes why they ask the question because they say, oh my gosh, I'm having this agitated energy. What do I do with it? That is the rapture factor. It's pleasure that's coming from good concentration and good momentary mindfulness, moment to moment mindfulness, and it's free flow, tingling, lightness, or agitated alertness that comes in the body. So it's the uplifting, it's the uplifting, energizing happiness that we have. Part of the reason it's agitating is it's happening while we're sitting still. We experience that kind of energy similar when we're out in activity, except here we've generated that energy 
from present moment awareness. And it's not, we're not doing it while we're running. We're not doing it while we're doing anything physical. So it's sometimes it can feel very explosive in the body and feel very agitated because it's a different type of emotion. It's being cultivated from within. So we have to learn how to do stuff with it so it's not uncomfortable. So rapture is uplifting. Sometimes it can be very subtle and sometimes it can be very, um, for some people, annoying. I've often referred to it as being annoying, even though it's technically pleasurable. Um, it's sort of an annoying pleasure, if you will. So the other one brings us down. The other type of pleasure brings us down. And this is why it's called tranquility. It's a release of stress and tension. So the closest thing you can, you can get to it is if you take a real deep breath in and a real deep breath out and say, ah, and relax the body. It's that kind of thing. It's different, but it's that, that's the ballpark. It's the category that we have with tranquility. But it's not caused by anything on the outside. It comes strictly from inside, but it's that kind of thing. So it's the release of stress and tension. It is a sense of ease. Sometimes the most common way people experience it is a sense of openness or expansiveness. The body feels like it's expanding or is opening and you can feel... Sometimes it feels like you're growing physically, even though you're not um, growing physically. So it feels like you're expanding. And sometimes it feels uh, almost as if you're floating a little bit, like there's a disorientation to where you are in your body. And it's, it's calming. There's a sense of ease. And I would say many of us experience it in meditation um, after we've been sitting for quite some time and we feel that tension of the day just give way. We feel that last tension in the neck or the back just kind of drop. And there's a sense of ease, right? It's a sense of ease. And that is our tranquility. That's our calming factor. So these two factors go hand in hand. And again, the difference between experiencing these in your daily life when it's being triggered by activity and experiencing them as enlightenment factors is that you're now learning how to generate them yourself. You're learning what ingredients do I need to mix together to get the rapture soup or the calming soup, right? How do I, what does the cookbook say about how to create calm in my meditation? What do I need to put together to make this happen? So that's the main difference uh, there on that end of it. So we've got our energizing and our calming uh, factors. And most of you have experienced both of these at least in small amounts because what really creates them ultimately is present moment awareness. It is the product of continuous mindfulness. So the more mindful you are, the more possibility that tranquility and rapture are going to be the result. And when you finally are able to maintain mindfulness for many minutes at a time, even if five, five, six minutes, um, and it's for, you know, for a lot of us, that is, that's challenging. Um, but when we can get to that five or six minute mark or go longer into 10 minutes or so, then you're going to start experiencing more of the energizing and more of the calm sensations in your meditation. So that's where, where that comes in. Um, the Buddha often talks about it being a sign of good, healthy mindfulness um, because energizing and calm sensations are not going to usually coincide with the hindrances. The hindrances are going to be elsewhere, hibernating, and this is what's going to happen in its place. So instead of those painful, aversive, dense, tense, tight, sharp sensations, which are associated with the hindrances, 
you're going to have these, these countermeasures here um, that you're going to be learning to cultivate in your meditation. Let's see. Pain, aversion, energy coming. Okay. So one other thing I wanted to bring in uh, from last week to explain a little bit more about these two sensations. Last week, we talked about fabrication. And again, that's just the, the co-creation of your experience. It's what you're doing in your meditation. Anything you're doing in your meditation is the fabrication, um, the, the creating, the engagement. And we talked about that there is three ways that we participate in, in life, really, in the present moment. But in meditation in particular, we participate through our body, the way our posture is. We participate in the way that we're breathing. So that's our bodily fabrication. We can change our posture and we can change our breathing and that changes how we show up in that moment. We can change the way we think. Standard, classic, cognitive behavioral therapy. Change your thought, change your life. Change the stories that we tell. And another one is our images, our perceptions. But images is a better way of looking at it. So we can imagine something. We can imagine something. And I can imagine that I'm traveling to a happy place and a happy emotion arises. So we have bodily fabrication breath body, we have verbal fabrication, how we talk to ourselves about what's going on, and then mental fabrication, how we imagine things, how we perceive things in our head, in our fantasy world. And those are three ways that we engage the present moment and, and change what we experience. When we start practicing how to get energy, rapture, and calm, tranquility to arise, we use these tools. That's what they're for. We use these fabrication tools to cultivate them in our practice. So we use changing our breath. We use our awareness of body. We use thoughts. We use images to create or cultivate these experiences. So it's a very active process that we use to get these to arise in our meditation. And I know from my own experience that many of you have not done this before or um, have been told not to do it or that it's bad. Um, it, there's a gambit of experiences and teachings that people have related to pleasure in meditation. Um, so I know when I first learned to do this, I was really insecure about it being a part of meditation because I was told that meditation was about letting go and I wasn't supposed to be doing anything. And this seemed like a lot of doing. And I, was, I had spent so many years non-doing, which is the equanimity factor of enlightenment, that I didn't know there were other factors of enlightenment that I was supposed to be working on or could be working on in my practice. So it's okay if you have that response. It's okay if there's skepticism, doubt, fear about doing things like this in meditation. Because if you've spent a lot of time um, working on equanimity, working on letting go, working on non-attachment, then this is going to seem very counterintuitive, which it certainly did to me. And it took me years to figure out that it was okay and was a part of the practice. It really took me a long time to accept um, that there were seven factors of awakening and not two or three factors of awakening. So if that's your response, totally normal, was for me, and it is for almost everybody I talk to who, who doesn't come up in meditation through a tradition that incorporates all the factors you know, from the beginning. So, and it's very common in American Buddhism that we don't talk about this very often. So it could sound foreign. Not a problem. Um, let's see. Is there anything else? 
Let's see. I think that's enough for the talk because I just wanted to give you the overview and then I want to spend time practicing.